Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Breakfast today is dedicated in celebration of the birth of their granddaughter to Jennifer and Hiram Haddad, sponsored by Cynthia and Eli Haddad. Breakfast is sponsored, but also by Gabriel Amos in honor of Joe Shatrit and in honor of the engagement of Yaron Dahan to Deborah Abitan. Breakfast is also dedicated for the Refuash of the Ma'av Yonatan Yehuda Ben Halina Tova. Rabotai, there's a very interesting pasuk in this week's parasha, and it seems to be, it seems as if it is something which is like a fish out of water. It's completely in the wrong place. The pasuk says to us, This is my God, and I shall beautify him. This is my God, and I shall make him, I shall glorify him. What do we learn from this? The Gemara says in Shabbat, we learn from this, which means you have to go and do a mitzvah, not in the commandment type way, but rather with an element of, uh, of extra. So as an example, if a person has an option of getting a lulav that looks diseased, okay, or a regular nice green lulav, spend the extra flus and get the, get the lulav. You have a beautiful menorah or a menorah that looks like it, you got it in the garbage can, even though one is cheaper and also you're Jewish, still you have an obligation to spend more money to try and upgrade the mitzvah experience. Why? Because ze'elin ve'anveu. Now the Gemara actually quantifies what this means. Because really, in the davasof, there's no end. Let's say as an example, you give a guy sedakah, you give him $100. So that's a good mitzvah. So we're now learning, you have to do mitzvah, you have to do extra. So maybe I have to give him $1,000. But if I give him 1000 what are you going to tell me? Maybe I have to give him a million. I give him a, bill, a million, maybe I have to give him a billion dollars. There's no end. So the Gemara actually says that there's a quantifiable number that we use in order to ascertain what obligates a person if they have two options in front of them to do a mitzvah, a regular one and a nice one, how far they have to go. What does the Gemara say? Where do we, what do we learn? Ad shilish b'misvah, which means, let's say there's a pair of tefillin. A pair of tefillin is a nice pair, but there's a nicer pair. The first pair is $200. The second pair is uh, an extra 50 bucks. So what percentage of 200 is $50? A quarter, okay? So up until a third, yani up until $66.66, a person would have they'd be, uh, what's it called, obligated to buy the nicer tefillin. Why? Part of the mitzvah is to do it in a nice way. Why? And I think this is very important. This is one of the, the, one of the great misnomers, I think, in Judaism. You know, in Judaism, we find sometimes a person has obligations and we relate to our, uh, our mitzvot as a king to a servant. We are avadim, we're slaves and God is our master. In a scenario where you have, you're the slave and he's the master, you're the owner of the house, this person's a chedameh, you know, there's no relationship that develops between the two people. I have to do what you say, so I'm going to do what you say well, otherwise you'll fire me, or otherwise, you know, I'll get punished as a servant, or whatever the case might be. But imagine a husband and wife who, uh, whose response to each other's needs is the response of obligation. There's no love there. There's no development of the relationship. There's no romance when someone does exactly what the person has to do. So as an example, the wife says, would you know it's our anniversary, take me out for dinner. The guy says, no problem. And he takes her for falafel. Had that sleeping on the couch. Why? Because at the end of the day, what she wanted, <laughs> she didn't physically need dinner. She didn't need to eat food, right? She could have done that herself. 
What she wanted was the the extra, the effort that the person is going to put in to show that the relationship is valuable. So it's a fascinating thing here because what we're saying here is not only do you have to do the mitzvot in the obligatory manner, but if there's a chance to do it in a nicer way, wouldn't you take the nicer way if it only costs a little bit more? You're sitting online, you know, with your wife, with your father, whichever way the case might be, it's not only husband wife, with your dad. You're taking your father on a business trip, you're taking him on a, on a trip for his birthday, you get to the, to, the, to the counter and they say, Sir, your ticket's uh, you know, in, uh, in uh, economy, class, uh, whatever case might be, are uh, uh, $77 to Florida. You, know, you could upgrade the first class, lie flat seat for $79. The guy says, no, thank you, I'm okay, I'm trying to be on a budget. The father, even though a minute ago, $77 was a trip that the son paid to take him to Florida. Now he feels like a spoon. He feels like uh, you don't value him. Why? Because for a certain amount of sacrifice, if we're not willing to sacrifice a certain amount, it illustrates that the relationship is one of obligation and not one of love. A relationship like that can only deteriorate. Why? Because bottom line, how long can we be martyrs for? How long can we just give and give and give because we are obligated to? Love springs eternal. I like to borrow the, the phrase, okay, from hope. Love springs eternal. There's something that constantly grows when a person is in love. When they love someone, it deepens it. Uh, there's a texture to it. As time goes on, you see the person in all different scenarios. You see them in difficult situations, duress, how they stuck with you, how they were, etc., etc. And it, get, it gets better and better. So where does this number a third come from? And I want to share with you, this is something fascinating. Why? He pauses to drink from his coffee. The reason is... <clears throat> Because if you take a look, actually, this verse is completely, completely out of context. It's like a fish out of water. It's a non sequitur. What are we talking about over here when we, when we lay down this lyric? Where are we? The Jewish people leave Egypt. The sea splits. The Jews are like, yeah, the sea, amazing. God, you rock. Somewhere in this soliloquy of the Jewish people thanking God for splitting the sea, what do they say? This is my God and I shall glorify him. We learn from there the law of doing up to a third in doing a mitzvah better. It's just, what the heck does that have to do with this? You want to put that halacha somewhere, where should you put it? When the Jews are getting the Torah on Mount Sinai, here's all the mitzvot, and the Jews say, not only do I say, I see your mitzvot, and I raise you a third. That's what they should have said. Right? Why would we put that over here? What does this have to do with anything? Rabbi Tayyid, I want to share with you a fascinating idea. The Torah tells us that when Yosef came to Mitzrayim, Paro put him on his own horses. It was called Markevet HaMishneh, which means the, the, uh, um, the chariot. Mishneh means something which is doubled. Paro was the first person to have a chariot that wasn't pulled by one horse. He was pulled by two horse. And ever since then, men have been bragging about horsepower. Either way, the point is, so you go from one horse to two horses. That's Markevet HaMishneh. But what we find in, in uh, Az Yashir is actually fascinating. Because it says, Paro is coming with all of, his, uh, all of his merry men. And as he's driving with all of his merry men, what does the Pasuk say? Vayikach shesh rechev. He takes 600 chariots, Bachur chosen. Vishalishim al-kulo. Some people translate the word shalishim to mean an officers that are managing these chariots. He took them, the officers, his military officers. But the targum, the, uh, um, 
the translation in ancient Aramaic written by Unculus writes, Vishalishi means Mulaita Tlita'a, which means a third horse. Vishalishim al-Kulo. Paro, even though for his own chariot, for his own diplomatic missions to the UN, he would go with two horses. But this guy, when he was chasing the Jews, what did he do? He hitched a third horse because he was so anxious to come back, to pay them back, to bring them back into servitude. The hatred that he had spurred him on to new heights. Rabotai, we have a modern day version of this only 75 years ago. When the troops landed on D-Day and the beachfronts in Normandy, word came to Hitler, that the Allies had fooled them in their landing and had made their breach into Europe. The war without D-Day would not have gone the way that it did. I heard that there was a TV show uh, that they put out recently, like what would have happened had the Allies not won, had the Nazis basically taken over the whole world and changed the whole world order to the Third Reich, Hitler's dream of a thousand years. But that day, D-Day was the day that broke that dream. Without the beachfront, without a landing pad, they never could have been. And the stories surrounding that heroic day and the codes that they figured out with Enigma, how they fooled them and give fake codes, etc. Word gets to Hitler that the troops, the Allied troops have landed in Normandy. And they tell him, we have an option of getting all of our German troops to the beachfront to hold back this attack, to repeal the beach landing and to murder and to destroy the soldiers who as is had a difficult time. They could not get up the beach. They were being mown down like, uh, like grass. They said to Hitler, we could get our soldiers there, but we need your Führer's uh, uh, royal seal, if you will, to approve rerouting the trains that were taking Jews to their death to be used to bring the soldiers to the battlefront. You have your pet project destroying the Jews. Hit pause for a few days. Give us those trains that take, you know, thousands and thousands of Jews to their death. Give us those trains for a few days, we'll fill them with soldiers, and then we won't lose the war. And Hitler refused. He wouldn't let them commandeer his, his uh, because the hatred was so strong. Rabbi Utai, Paro's hatred of adding an extra horse to enliven the chase, to make it quicker, to overtake the Jews, was motivated by a sheer hatred for the Jews. And like the Pasuk says, what does God do with Shalishim al-Kulo? What does he do with these, these three horses, like the Pasuk says? Umivchar shalishav to be'ubi amsuf. And the chosen thirds, God destroyed, God drowned in the ocean. So whereas we see this extreme hatred, the, if you will, hidur mitzvah, the excess of someone who tries to double down on evil, if that's where we see uh, uh, someone doing it for the wrong reasons, and as well we see the protection of God in that space to protect us from that extra evil, this is the place where we say, God, we will remember eternally what you did for us back then, and we will double down on our love as well. And what percentage? Exactly the same as Paro, that extra third uh, that he did for the wrong things. Rabotai, I just want to say by way of closing, this is such an important element, such an important part of the Jewish people. Today on Shabbat, excuse me, there's a custom where we leave out a little bit of crumbs 
for the birds on Shabbat B'Shalach. I don't know if you know this. You take some breadcrumbs, before Shabbat it should be done, you stick them out. And the question is, everybody asks, why? Why do we have this custom? And the answer is because during this time, when, uh, what's it called? When the Jewish people were leaving Misraim, so the, the birds, they were, as the Jewish people were singing the song of Az Yashir Moshe, the birds were chirping along, okay? That's not a normal thing. When, when humans are making a lot of noise, what do birds do? They go quiet. But because it enlivened the song, it made it something special, so we remember that for thousands of years. Why? Because this is the parasha in which we talk about having gratitude. Having gratitude to those that were there for us. You know, even though not everything was hunky-dory, the birds didn't do that much other than that. But at the same time, we show them gratitude. We even show a modicum of gratitude to the Egyptians themselves who hosted us even though they beat us while they hosted us. And I think this speaks to every person who you tell them, you have to have gratitude to your parents. And what does a person say? My parents weren't the best parents. They shambled me, yelled at me to do this, to do that. The person feels, but to that person we say, gratitude is not to someone that gave you 100% goodness without an ounce of something that you're complaining about. Because you know what? If that's what gratitude is, a person will never have gratitude to anybody. Which person is only good, only, 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 never an agenda, never anything, never any? For whatever you got, you have to say thank you. And if this is the parasha of gratitude, gratitude to God for saving us, we even show it by illustrating even for the tiniest thing, even for a bird, it's something that's important to us as well, Rabotai, to reach out to those that have given us that boost. You know, a lot of times we think of ourselves as very successful people, but we don't remember that to get our business started, someone lent us that first $10,000. Someone believed in us. Someone, you know, they sponsored, if you will, the beginnings of our dream. And you said thank you 50 years ago, but you know what? You said thank you for 10000 Did you say thank you for the empire you built? Did you say thank you for what you have now? Because really everything is built upon that. That's why it's so important for children to have respect for their parents because everything that you are and everything that you will create, the children that you raise, the house that you build, the fortunes that you make, the, the missions that you accomplish in this world, all of that is based on the gift that your parents gave you, the gift of life. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen. Rabbi Chananya